राजनलम्बितो भुजो कनकावरतो संकीर्तनायक पितरो कमलायथक्षो विश्वम्बरो द्विजबरो युगधर्मपालो वन्दे जगत्प्रियकरो करुणावतारो वन्दे श्रीकृष्ण चैतन्ना नित्यानंद सोहोदितो गौरवदाय पुष्पवंतो चित्रसंदोतनुनुदो श्री गोरीवशनाभ गुरु परंपरा की जाय हरि नाम प्रभु की जाय ओ प्रेमानंद So I'd like to speak briefly from Bhagavad Gita. This edition is uh, called Bhagavad Gita: Its Feeling and Philosophy. Recent edition that I was uh, involved with for a few years, writing and commenting on the Bhagavad Gita. The Gita you're all familiar with, uh, I would imagine. Bhagavad Gita is probably the most famous and well-known Hindu sacred text. And it's interesting to note that the the book Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad refers to God, so it means God and Gita means song, that it's entitled such. Spiritual life in many respects is uh, best communicated through song and poetry and such types of expression, vocal expression that lend to spontaneity and stir emotions within us. And in the Gaudiya lineage, in the lineage of Sri Chaitanya in which I come, there is the idea that while our mental and emotional experiences of this world are, for the most part, here today and gone tomorrow, and they cause us to toss and turn, so to speak, on the waves of the ocean of of emotions. And spiritual life, in contrast, is often described as being still, as if you reached the beach or something, or that the oceans ceased to have waves, and it was peaceful and quiet, the lineage of Sri Chaitanya, in which I come, in which this commentary represents, speaks about another ocean, an ocean of spiritual emotions beyond, so to speak, the stillness, the peace, the shanti, 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 that is certainly the shore of spirituality or the island of spirituality in the ocean of material emotions where we can get some rest some peace from that tossing and turning. But in the Gaudiya lineage, there's an idea about Brahman, about spirit, that would compare that peace, that stillness, that shanti, as I am at the moment, to the beach, to the shore. Whereas further on in the island, there's much vegetation. That's all, uh, well, the water comes from the ocean, but by a certain arrangement, it becomes distilled and the salt comes out in a, in a pure form. It can pour down on the land and so much lush vegetation, fruits and vegetables and flowers and fauna and so forth can arise, making for an experience of considerable variety coming from the world of material variety where the variety in the ocean of material emotions is something that's largely a product of our own minds. This is, of course, a very central point to the basic teaching of the Gita, regardless of what lineage we may be in or whether we're not connected with any particular lineage but are interested in spiritual life. You've probably heard this before, that our mind is somewhat like the central computer of our present sense of identity, as much as we are identified with our bodies, our nationality, our personality, our likes and our dislikes, as much as our likes and our dislikes define us then that sense of self, this mind, with regard to that, is like kind of the central computer of our sense of of being, to which messages are relayed through the medium of the senses of perception, our senses of seeing and tasting and hearing and touching and smelling. Through these mediums, 
of the senses, we touch, we experience what life is, and, and the message is relayed to that central computer of our mind, and it makes a determination, sankalpa vikalpa. This is its basic function in yoga psychology. This is described. Sankalpa vikalpa means, basically it means, I like this and I don't like that. I accept this, I reject that. This is good, that's bad. This is happy, and that's sad. This is hot, that's cold. And so we arrive at a certain sense of identity based on our likes and dislikes that differentiates us from others who, experiencing the very same phenomena, while I say it's hot, they may say it's cold. While I say it's good, they may say it's bad. While I say it's happy, they may say it's sad. So the question arises, which is it? (laughs) And the answer, in one sense, is that that perception and that sense is relative to the instruments of perception and the determination about those arrived at by the mind. But is there a way of understanding or experiencing or knowing the nature of existence beyond this means of knowing, which is obviously relative. And, of course, the answer in in the spiritual disciplines is is indeed there is. And therefore, we have to go beyond this world of emotions, like I like and I don't like, to put it very simply. Of course, there's a multitude of emotions and many shades of each and so forth, but this is basically what we are we find ourselves immersed in, and it's uh, it can be disconcerting. And so we often seek to understand it better, to pursue spiritual life, to understand what it is we're experiencing, why it is what we're experiencing, and why it is we can experience what we, in our heart of hearts, want to experience. Some kind of peace, stability, security, But as much as we want peace, stability, security, unity, a coming together, that this mental perception of self and reality doesn't afford, not in a universal sense, maybe with another individual we can get together and be very close, because we both agree it's hot, or we agree to disagree. Something like that, okay. In this way, we forge a relationship, and we call it love. And indeed, it is some sense of love, but the full sense of love is universal. And it's something that, if you look at it from any side, it's love. If I love one, I may not love another. And my love for one may be negatively defined by those that I don't love or that which I don't love. So the real sense, the full sense of love is a universal sense of love that from whatever angle we look at it, it comes out as love. This, of course, is what the spirit traditions talk about. This is what we want. And unity is certainly part of that. And peace from the tossing and turning of the roller coaster ride of material emotions certainly would seem to be part of that. And stability and an a sense of an enduring experience, not one that is here today and gone tomorrow. All this is certainly part of love, universal love, and that which we seek on the spiritual path. But as much as we seek peace, which is kind of a quietude and restful, we also seek to be loud sometimes, (laughs) to make music and to dance joyfully. As much as we seek uh, stability, we also seek instability. We like to take risks and chances and and do something exciting. As much as we seek unity, we seek variety also, diversity. We want both. So the Vedanta of the Gaudiya tradition very much answers to these contradictory calls of our heart, of our soul, for, as I say, unity and variety unity and diversity at the same time, quietude and and, and celebration at the same time. It's termed the Vedanta of the Gaudi lineage, achintya, which means something that's not rationally conceivable, bed-abed, bed-abed. 
unity and difference at the same time. When I say Vedanta, I mean a metaphysic of the Gaudiya tradition. I mean the world view, the view of reality that its mystics have arrived at when they went beyond the mind. And it makes for a spiritual reality, an ultimate attainment, so to speak, that in the analogy that I began with is more about the jungle of flowers and fauna and fruits and all of which has a similarity with, and it seems, some connection with that salty ocean of emotions that we wanted to get out of and we were tossing and turning, where the water you can't drink, it's wet, but you can't drink it, and it's disconcerting, you might go under, and then the next minute you're tossed high, and so sort of land on the beach. This is Shanti, peace, peace. But then to move on into Brahman deeply, this is the idea of the Gaudias as they speak about it, where the water, where the emotions that make up that ocean have been transformed. The salt has been taken out, it's been distilled, and when it pours down, it gives life to the, to the vegetation and an experience of variety compared to the unity or the oneness of the beach, something like that. So, this is a doctrine of love, really, the Gaudiya doctrine, more than it is a doctrine of knowledge. And so a doctrine of love, of universal love and of spiritual love, is best spoken of, best voiced in song and in poetry. So Bhagavad means God and Gita means song. It's a song of God. Now, it's interesting because while Bhagavad Gita is the song of God, there's 700 poetic verses to the Gita, but they're very sobering in many respects. Krishna, you know, spoke Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna is, as per Bhagavad Gita, the god of gods, Param Brahma. And he's well known for flute playing. You've seen the, the deity of Krishna, the picture of Krishna playing the flute. The most perfect instrument is the voice, the human voice, really. And the flute is that instrument that takes from the voice and with very little distortion, it, it augments the voice. This is the idea of the flute. So he plays the flute, it's a very charming instrument and full of spontaneity. Krishna's known to be dancing with milkmaidens and herding cows, roaming freely in the Vrindavan forest. His crown is a peacock's feather, decorated with the minerals of the ground, different colors and, and so on. Not a, a regal Lord, seated on a high throne, worshipped with great opulence and reverence and awe. In fact, his associates are so intimately associated with him that it is as if he is one of them, coming to them on their terms, in intimate love. This idea of Vrindavan Krishna, the rural Krishna, the pastoral Krishna, is philosophically speaking, is that plane, that dimension, that plane of experience in which the infinite, the absolute, comes so close to the finite in intimacy that by necessity it must take on a finite appearance. Because without taking on an apparent finite experience, the possibility of intimacy is removed. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, if we knew we were sitting next to God, we'd say, oh my God! <laughs> Something like that, and we would step back for a moment. So this is the idea of Krishna, that if we want such intimacy, such love of God, in love, what happens? In love, the union is such that the distinction between the lover and the beloved becomes blurred. I accept your heart and your mind as mine, and you accept my heart and my mind as yours. We remain in separate bodies, <laughs> but I act as if I'm in yours, you act as if I'm in mine. This is the idea of love. We don't get so close to that in this world, and I've already explained briefly why. We have to come to a fuller sense of ourself, what it is beyond the mind, to arrive at that. And our love must be directed 
towards Godhead in order for it to be universal. That is not at the cost of loving wife, children, friends, family, whatever it may be, directing all love to God. But that is the way in which we can truly love our friends, our family, our children, profoundly love them, love them and care for them, relate with them in such a way that there's no tinge of exploitation. Love is about giving. That is not at all about getting. And as much as we attach getting to our giving, we're not giving, and we are not getting what giving only can afford. So selfless love, full giving, means giving to Godhead. And what this plane of Braj Krishna, Vrindavan Krishna is, is about is arriving at such a destination of union, such a plane of union with God that the distinction between the individual soul and Godhead is blurred. What I mean by that is not that the individual becomes the God, the Supreme Soul, but like the blurring in love where the distinction between two is blurred, but the two remain. So there's a union, there's unity, and there's diversity at the same time. And after all, as much as love is about union, it's about two being one, but not in such a way that the two dissolve. So it's a dynamic kind of a union, not a static union. Harmony, in musical terms, is many, many notes. The more notes that there can be, the greater the harmony. They're all playing the same tune, so there's unity. But it's not all just one note. That is a rather static idea of harmony. I don't even think it is harmony. There needs to be more than one note for there to be harmony. So, this is the idea of Braj Krishna, this Vrindavan Krishna. That Krishna you see with the peacock feather. Human-like. He's completely God and completely human. This is a very interesting theological idea. Completely God, what does it mean? Completely God. And we think God means he must be all-powerful then. Godhead is all-powerful. The source of everything. So whatever comes out of that source, whatever power must be in, within the source. So all-powerful. How Krishna can be God, the full God, all-powerful. Sometimes Radharani, his uh, consort is chastising him in his lila. How can he be all-powerful? Sometimes with his cowherds, his friends, he's wrestling, and he becomes defeated. And he has to carry them in their game on his shoulders. How can he be the supreme, all-powerful? This is the idea. When Krishna is being chastised by Radha, lamenting for her company, when Krishna is being defeated by his friends, when his mother Jashoda is chasing him to capture him for stealing butter from the neighbors, this is all play. This is Leela, the play of God. When he steals, is he culpable? No more than one who steals from himself. <laughs> when we steal from ourselves, we call that play only. So all this is play. Now, what does play have to do with power? What is the connection between play and power? Oh, there's a big connection. Unless we have power, we can have play. You understand? Unless we have some power, some money in the bank. We've saved, we've worked, we've got some power. Now we can play. We can take a vacation. So who's only playing? He's all-powerful. This is the idea. Fully God and fully human. Fully human means that he comes to us fully on our terms. Human-like. Fallen in love. Krishna is God, fallen in love. He's fallen in love with his devotees. Love is a fallen condition. So humanity is a kind of a fallen condition which we try to transcend the limits of, the limits of humanity and know our spirituality. We could say that means to realize the full potential of humanity. Why? Because the distinction between humanity and animality is not merely, as it's often reasoned, the power of discrimination. 
It is said that humans differ from animals because they have the power of reason. But more than that, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu reasoned what the difference between humanity is and all of the species is that the full potential to love can be realized in the human form of life. We should reason about that and then put reason in its place. You know that it's not rational to believe in God. You know that, I think. From a fully rational point of view, there are many good arguments. We cannot give conclusive reasoning as to the existence of the soul or to speak of God that everyone will accept, every reasonable person will accept. But it's good to know that there's no meaning to life. <laughs> it's good to know that that means that, that life is about love which transcends reason. In that sense, there's no meaning to life. Ahituki, apartihata, yayatma sampasiditi, savaipum samparodharma, yato bhakti radhoksajay. This is the Bhagavad's message. The question is, what is the best dharma? It is bhakti. And what is that? How does it define? Ahituki. It has no reason. That which is beyond reason. That is love. Love knows no reason. It's not unreasonable to love, but it picks up where reason lives off. So Krishna is that full God, supreme God, who's fully human in the sense that he comes to huma- within humanity and his appearance is human-like. You know, you've seen, remember in the Hindu pantheon, the gods with four heads and, and four arms and so many configurations of gods and goddesses that are overtly otherworldly and they give us some inspiration, no doubt. They're transcendental. They're, they're godly. They're, they're devas. They're different from us. But Krishna's coming just like us. Just like a village boy, even. Not even a sophisticated human. Not even an educated human. A villager. A cowherd. Maybe if you've been to India and seen the boys who herd cows. <laughs> Very simple people. He's coming like that. And as I explained, that form of Godhead, that is the form in which Godhead appears, the absolute manifests, in relation to a heart that is just pregnant with love and devotion, just giving birth, it's giving birth to the highest love. Complete selflessness. If we study the, the Leela of Krishna, we find those people in the Leela, those gopis, those milkmaidens, those cowherd boys herding cows with Krishna, Kritapunya Punja, what they must have done to arrive at that plane of intimacy. It's inconceivable. They are not ordinary. Krishna's not ordinary. But there's an ordinariness to his appearance. And he is God, as I say, fallen in love. Love is a fallen condition. We say, I fell in love. <laughs> It means I fell, I did something that, well, I don't know if it was reasonable or right or what, but I did it anyway. If you tell a young girl who's fallen in love with a young boy, no, don't do it, this will never work. And let me give you all the reasons, let me sit you down. What to speak of not following that reasoning? She can't even listen to it. If it does anything, it simply serves to foster that love in her heart to intensify it. These devotees of Krishna, in his Leela, they have this kind of love. They can't listen to reason. They can't even listen to Bhagavad Gita. Still, Krishna spoke Bhagavad Gita. But Krishna spoke Bhagavad Gita in his Leela as a prince, not as a village boy, but as a prince. If you know something about the Leela of Krishna, the divine play of Krishna, then you know that as a young boy at about 10 or 11 years old, he left the village. He went to the big city, Mathura. From there he built his own city, Dwaraka. And there he was a prince. He lived in a royal situation. There he had a throne. There he had a crown. It wasn't a peacock feather. People related to him as God. In that situation, Krishna is among different type of devotees. 
various devotees, but they're different type. Their love is colored by some sense of his godhood. So there's less intimacy involved there. So some reverence, some awe is there. Some knowledge, you see, is there. Some knowledge of, oh, he's God. Still, he's with us. Wow. But he's God, and so it's tempered by that. So the Godhead's appearance corresponds with our heart. Yejatamam prapadyante tamstataiva bhajamiham manubartante manushaparta sarvasa. Famous verse of Gita. Krishna says, as they approach me, I reciprocate accordingly. That's my position. So these type of devotees in his Dwaraka Leela, in his city Leela, where he's become a city boy, they relate to him a little bit differently. From this Leela, from Dwarka, Krishna has come and spoken Bhagavad Gita. He's on the chariot with his devotee Arjuna. He's speaking philosophy here. But still it's entitled Bhagavad Gita, song. So the very word Gita in the title, oh, it reminds us of Vrindavan. Shriya kanta kanta parama purusha kalpataravo Dhrumabhumis chintamani ganamai toyamamritam Kathaganam natyam gamanam apibhangshi priyasaki Chidanandam jyoti paramapi tarasvadyam apicha It is said there, Oh, the land is such, that place, that domain is such that every word is a song. Every movement is a dance. One of our acharyas, Jiva Goswami, one of our gurus in our lineage, many years ago, writing about this, he said, what I sang is one song from a text called Brahma Samhita. It speaks about that, that place, that land, that domain, that plane of experience, Vrindavan Krishna. It says, as I mentioned, among other things, oh, that is the land where walking is dancing, every movement is dancing, where the talking is song. Jiva Goswami said, and imagine, what must be the song there? What must be the dance there? Such a place, so charming, so captivating. So charming, so captivating, that if you can hear about that, there is nothing more powerful and compelling that you could hear about to inspire you to pursue spiritual life. There's a lot of philosophy, and there's a lot of philosophy that is the underpinning of that plane. As you can see, I'm talking about it, and I'm somewhat charmed by it a little bit, but also I keep moving back to the philosophy as well, because there's a philosophical underpinning. Just like in art, we think of art, and we think spontaneity. We think artists, they just draw it. It's a circle and a line this way. But a circle and a line, and actually underlying art is so much math. Underlying art is also science. And if you go to art school, then you learn how to look at things a little bit differently. When you look at the picture, you can see a square there, you can see a, a right angle there, you can see a circle here, and so forth. I didn't go to art school, but I, I think it's something like that. So there's something where other ordinary people look at it and they just think, oh, he just drew, drew that. <laughs> wow, it's just inside him, and he just like drew that. And there is something inside, but it's augmented by a mathematical kind of underpinning to it that as an artist progresses, of course, that remains more and more in the background. It's still there. It's still foundational to it. But his work is actually more spontaneous and uh, natural and free-flowing to the extent that we think, oh, it, it's just, he just does it. It just comes from him. So love, love of God, universal love, real love, it's like that. There is a very scientific or philosophical ground to it. It is arising out of the Upanishads. Gita, Bhagavad Gita is called Gitopanishad also. It is in this way classified amongst the Upanishads, which are very sober literatures, very sober, philosophical, abstract. But this love that we're talking about, the love life of God, it arises out of that foundation. It's here in the Bhagavad Gita. That's why this Gita is attached to it, song. He wants to remind us, yes, this is Krishna. He's a prince. 
here he's like a statesman and speaking Upanishadic wisdom to his disciple and friend Arjuna, counseling him. It's a book of Gita, a song. I mean, it's a book of love. It's that same Krishna from that place, Vrindavan. But he's appearing in this way to speak Bhagavad Gita. But throughout the book, while he's speaking of the science of yoga and the philosophy, the metaphysics of real spiritual life, because he represents that plane of spontaneous love, when he speaks about philosophy, when he speaks about dharma, religion, philosophy, spirituality, and so forth, it has to come to devotion. Remind him back of his life in Vrindavan as a child, where his whole leela in Mathura and Dwarka as a city boy is all, if we study it carefully, is all reflecting only back on that pastoral leela and its significance. It's all an afterthought. For those who study it, they can see, oh, it's all reflecting back and pointing to that. This is the pinnacle. This is the highest ideal of love of Krishna. That union, so intimate, where there's a blur between Godhead and myself, such that I may appear superior to him. I may give him advice. This ekes out in Bhagavad Gita, here and there, because that's ultimately what it's about. Because it's about this, it's a song of God, and song, the song of God is fully played in Vrindavan. Arjun says to Krishna, Senayoru Bariyor Madhye, know this verse, Ratam Stapaya Me Chuta, Senayor Ubayor, it's the very beginning of Bhagavad Gita, first chapter, Senayor Ubayor Madhye, Ratam Stapaya Me Chuta. He gives an order to Krishna, Arjun. He's the disciple of Krishna, the friend of Krishna. He says, Drive the chariot between the two armies that are assembled. You know, Bhagavad Gita is on a battlefield and two armies are about to fight. So Krishna tells Arjun, drive the chariot between the two armies. I want to see who's here, who's assembled, what their intentions are. It's like saying, taxi, drive, drive, turn, turn, like this. Arjun is speaking to him. This is the essence of the whole Bhagavad Gita in the very first chapter. It means this book is about that plane of love where the Godhead is conquered by love, where God becomes subordinate to the love of his devotee. That is Krishna. That is the very meaning, the philosophical meaning of Krishna, the theological meaning of when we say Krishna. That's what it means. That face of the Absolute that is conquered by the love of his devotees for him. In other words, this book is talking about something higher than God. This is a very wonderful idea. Because every religious tradition tells us about God, that God is the worshipable object. But really, a careful study of Bhagavad Gita tells us what God is worshipping. That's secret information. That's very confidential. This is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's lineage wanted to speak about when he wanted to speak about spirituality. More than about God being the worshipable object of everyone, is God worship? <laughs> yes, this kind of love, this kind of ahituki bhakti, unalloyed bhakti, and this is what the Gita is about. Therefore, he says, this is the essence of Bhagavad Gita. This verse is spoken at the end of the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. There are 18 chapters in Bhagavad Gita. This verse is spoken right in the middle, right at the end of the ninth chapter. If you want to hide something in a book, you don't put it in the front. You don't put it right at the end. You put it way in the middle and close it up. So Krishna is not hiding anything. But where he placed the secret of secrets? First, right in the middle of Bhagavad Gita. It means you have to look very closely. You have to go through the whole thing. Because when you get to the middle, you're not finished. There's more. There's another nine chapters after that. Cause you to reflect back on that. You have to look very closely to catch this. So, 
it's there for everyone, but Krishna mandates, if you want to love me, you have to pay attention, <laughs> at least. You have to have some resolve in this matter. I'm not a cheap thing. You say, you want to love me? Okay, that's it. Pay attention now to what I say. I will teach you how to love me. That is Bhagavad Gita. And here he says in the ninth chapter, Manmana, he tells Arjuna, in this chapter he's speaking about devotion. The first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita are the psychology of the Bhagavad Gita, yoga psychology. The middle six chapters, the theology of the Gita. The final six chapters, 18 altogether, final six chapters of the metaphysics of the Bhagavad Gita, elaborated upon. All of these themes come up throughout all 18 chapters, but if we were to look at it carefully, we find, oh, six, first six, they emphasize this, the psychology of the Gita, yoga psychology, and what it means to be a devotee of Krishna. Religious, dutiful, detached, filled with mystic insight, engaged in serious spiritual practice, dhyana, and so forth. All these things are described. We come to the end of the sixth, sixth chapter and Krishna speaks about directly about bhakti. He says, this is, this is really, the, you should be a yogi, Arjuna. This is what this is about, he says. And of all types of yoga, bhakti, oh, that is so, so nice. I like that the most, Krishna says. What he's done in the first six chapters is really told Arjuna what it means to be a devotee. And Arjuna is overwhelmed by the thought of what it means really to be a, all that's involved to be a devotee in a real sense of the term. He's awed by that. My God. And then the middle six chapters, and Krishna starts speaking about himself. Because if you're going to be a devotee, you have to have the object of devotion. It happens to be Krishna. He happens to be the object. So he begins to speak about himself. And here, again in the ninth chapter, he starts to speak about pure devotion, the different types of devotion, mixed devotion, devotion mixed with karma, devotion mixed with knowledge, but pure devotion, unalloyed devotion, that makes knowledge seem small and insignificant, even even the knowledge that I say that Krishna is God, this kind of thing. So he says, he comes out, he's very emotional at this point, spiritually emotional. He says, Manmanabhavamadbhakta, he tells Arjuna, look, this is what it's about. Just Manmana, fix your mind on me. Manmanabhavamadbhakta, and become my devotee. It also means to be my devotee, you have to fix your mind on me. Can't be wavering here, there, and everywhere. If you can't really fix your mind on me fully, which is what love involves, then take steps to realize that. Madhyaji, worship me. Do some bhaiti, bhakti. Manmana, always think of me. That is rag bhakti. Always think of me. Mind always absorbed in thought of Krishna. Cannot deviate. What is the example? We try to think of Krishna. If we are devotee of Krishna, we try to meditate on Krishna. Think of Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. They are chanting on the beads, Krishna Nam. So many things are there. The world is full of distractions. In the ashram they are distracted. While chanting the name of Krishna, the mind is going someplace else. This is the life of sadhaka, a practitioner. But manmana, Always think of me. That is something more. Who can do that? What is the real standard of that? We must go to Vrindavan there. What do we find? We find gopis, those milkmaidens, who exemplify the highest standard of devotion and love for Krishna. And what are they doing? They're trying to forget Krishna. They're trying to not think about Krishna. Why? Because Krishna was there with them. At, at night they met on the full moon, finally after so many years of their budding love and meeting, exchanging glances, unbeknownst to others. On the full moon of the Sarat season, they went out, heard his flute, and through his flute, they each heard their own name on his flute, playing in their heart, and they went. They didn't know the others were going. When they arrived, they said, oh, you came too, and you heard it also. You're here. Oh, let's form a group based on this, who all heard this call of the flute of Krishna. This kind of organization we want to join. This kind of lineage we want to join. One of substance, not merely of form and corporation and the rules and the regulations and all these things. They have value and they're useful. 
as much as they foster this kind of unity, this kind of love. Gopis came and met him. On that night, their love was consummated in Rasalila. And shortly thereafter, Krishna left. As I said, he went to the city for a long, long, long time. And so what did they do? They tried to forget him. What pain of separation they felt from him. And they thought, oh, thinking about him is such a problem. Such a problem. You think about him and he disappears. So let us make a pact. Let us forget about Krishna. We'll stop thinking about him. They're trying to stop thinking about him. This is manmana, mind absorbed in me, in Krishna. They could not stop. The more they try to think about him, the more they think about him. This is what Krishna is talking about. He tells Arjun, manmana, always think of me, be my devotee. This is the full idea. We call it rag, ragmarg. It means spontaneous. There's no reason for it. That is kamanuga. There's no reason for it. Gopi shouldn't love Krishna. If you know the leela of Krishna, in that social setting, they shouldn't love him. Because the social setting was such that young girls, they had to be married at a young age, and this had to be arranged, announced publicly, and so forth. And, and to be in private with a young boy before marriage, it's just in that social setting, was absolutely unacceptable. There was no place for it. There was no justification for it, no reason for it. He did it anyway, compelled by their love. It's called Kamanuga, following calm, desire only, passion for God. It's passion for God that they had. This is Manmana, Baba Manbhakti. We call it Ragmarg. And then from Ragmarg, then there's beneath that, there's Vaidimarg. Vidi means rules. So like, if you and I are roommates, partners in living, because, well, we get along. We find compatibility, so let's live together. But then sometimes after living together for some time, then we find, oh, gosh, you know, you play that radio so loud, and at that time I like to sleep. And, and he said, well, will you get up so early, and you make so much noise. So, okay, we try to make the thing work, so let's agree on a few things. You won't play the music after this time. I won't rise before this time. We make a list of rules. We put it on the wall. We live by those. This way we salvage the relationship, something like that. So this is kind of a breakdown of love. At the same time, we may organize ourselves in such a way, spiritually, such that it will foster love. We don't have love for Krishna spontaneously, so there may be things that we can do that will, will foster it. So there may be some things we shouldn't do, some things that we should do, and our life should be governed by that if we want to love Krishna. And by following that, and aspiring spiritually for that type of ideal of spiritual love, love of Krishna, then, in time, from Madhyaji, Madhyaji means worship me. So, you see, worshiping God is different from loving God. In worship, there's some calculation involved. I'm worshiping because it's the right thing to do and because he's God and I should do it. But in love, there's no calculation. It's spontaneous, simply doing even gopis shouldn't do, socially speaking, but they're doing. So he says, Manmana Baba Madhbhakta, become my devotee, fix your mind on me. But then he says, Madhyaji. And the implication is, well, you can't do that anyway. Worship me. You see, our ideal is not to worship God. Our idea is to be, not God, but worship. To be worship. That is the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. To be worship. Like Thich Nhat Hanh said, be peace, being peace. He had a famous book, Being Peace. This is a little different. Being worship. When you become the worship, you see, then there's no, there's no calculation involved. Oh, in Krishna's retinue, in his leela, amongst his, amongst his associates, each one embodies a flavor of this kind of spontaneous love or worship, but reaching the pitch of love. 
self-forgetfulness, from self-sacrifice, from selfishness to self-sacrifice, to self-forgetfulness. The domain of of Vrindavan Krishna is the self-forgetfulness. Each player in that leela has completely forgotten himself, so to speak. He become a particular flavor, a taste of worship as a friend of Krishna, as a lover of Krishna. In that leela we see so many persons and our Gurudev may represent one camp in that group, in that leela. A particular taste of love for Krishna, like friend of Krishna, like lover of Krishna, something like that. And therefore, yasya prasadat, bhagavat prasadu, yasya prasadam, nagati kutopi, sakshadhoditrena, samastha shastri, but kintu prabolya priyavatasya, guru, representing God, but if you look more closely, represents a kind of love for God, a particular kind of love for God, and we want that kind of love for God, and he embodies that, we want to become one with that. And therefore, oh, if you want to please Krishna, we serve the Guru. It means if you want to love Krishna, you have to get that love. This is the object. The, our object is, is love of Krishna. This is a high idea. So we want to be worship. Where there's no distinction between the object of worship and the worship, the worship is just spontaneously worshipping. There's a union, a dynamic union between, you see, it's bed abed. Don't think it is only, only bed, it is abed also. There's not only difference, there's oneness also. So there's a oneness of love, complete oneness, oneness of will of Krishna. In this bhakti tradition we like to say, oh, if you love Krishna, you'll be an individual. You'd like to be an individual, don't you? Yes, I do. Certainly, you can worship Krishna and be an individual. But listen closely. You have to give up your all sense of individuality based on your mind, mind's likes and dislikes, which we spoke about earlier. That all has to disappear, be retired. And what will become your likes? What will become your dislikes? Oh, as Krishna likes, as Krishna dislikes, as the Absolute likes to express itself in love and joy and celebration of His fullness, through so many different ways. That is called Leela. And those who are participating in that, they're mediums through which he expresses himself. And they become filled with that love. Why is Radha there? Everything is in Krishna. Radhini Shakti is inside Krishna. But he manifests separately that Shakti as Radha, to taste it, to experience it. But we cannot just be worship, so to speak. So we should worship establish the deity of Krishna and follow certain things which will be favorable, things that are not favorable. And worship, and the basis of worship is namaskar. We say namaskar. Nama. Not me. This is what we say. Namaskar. Namaste. It means not me. Offer my regard to you and you as a manifestation of God. So namaskar is a simple beginning of worship, but it's also complete because it, it implies namaskar. You, you offer your whole body, mind, words. So Krishna is calling for this in Bhagavad Gita. And he says, if you do this, absorbing yourself like this in me, fully with your mind, you'll come to me. This is what he says. This is his message. And he reiterates this message at the end of the Gita. But he says it just a little bit differently. He says, Manmana Baba Madbhakto, same. Madhyaji Mamnamaskuru, same. Mame Vaishasi, same. But Mame Vaishasi Satyamte Pratijani Priyoshime. So what is the difference? And I'll conclude with this. In ninth chapter he says it, but there he's talking about his devotees' love for him. He says, so this way, absorb your mind completely in me. Mame Vaisasi Yuktvainam, become one with me in, in yoga, 
in love, in the yoga of love, and you'll come to me. So all this is involved on your part in coming to me. Be my devotee. This is what it involves. I've spoken in previous chapters about so many things that you have to control your mind, you have to control your senses, you have to so forth and so on and so on. So much of that mathematics, of that science, of that philosophical foundation to love. But in 18th chapter, now Krishna's concluded the Gita. He's at the very end. And he wants to tell Arjuna once again, once and for all, what this is all about because he's spoken about so many things. Love, you know, moves in a crooked way. In Ujbalimani, Rupa Goswami says, love moves like a snake in a crooked way. It means sometimes I say, I hate you, but I'm saying I love you for those who know how to listen. I hate him. Oh, but one who has, knows the language of love, oh, yeah, I know what, what's going on. So love moves in a crooked way, he says, like that. And through the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna has spoken about so many paths. He's really speaking about love only. But he talks about this path and that path and another path by way of contrast. He's speaking about many different things to stress what, he, what the one thing that he wants to say. Love me. This is the essence of all dharma. And in the 18th chapter, he tells Arjuna, let me tell you once, once and for all, once again, what this is about. This is the most confidential secret. I stuck it in the middle of my book. Now I'm bringing it out again and saying it to you plainly. What is the difference? And the first time he said it, he's talking about Arjun's love for him, the devotee's love for him. But the second time he talks about it, in the last part of the sloka, he expresses his love for the devotee, for his devotee. He says, think of me, worship me, become my devotee, offer your respect to me, and I tell you this, I love you, and I promise you, do it. Just only do that, and you'll come to me. I promise you. He says, I love you. Don't you understand? I love you, and I promise you, Satyam, I say the truth here. Do this. And you'll get everything. You'll get me fully. So there's two things we have to consider in all of this. We have to make great effort to love Krishna, to attain the full experience of spiritual life. It won't be easy. We have to think like that. Full effort. And we also have to think another thing, that our success will be fully dependent upon His love for us, His kindness towards us, His kripa, His mercy. These two things. We should live in the world as if our spiritual advancement depends upon our effort, full knowing that our progress will only be possible by his love for us. And his message is, he loves us. He says to Arjuna, I love you, and I promise you, just do these things. Just be my devotee. This supersedes everything else I said in the whole Bhagavad Gita. So we have a lot going for us if you just become interested in becoming Krishna's devotee. How is that? And what will be the evidence of that? That you develop some affection for his devotee. <laughs> if Krishna sees, oh, he loves my devotee. Oh, I love him too. <laughs> this is the psychology of love. Oh, he said that about my devotee. Oh, bring him here. I want to see him. Krishna takes interest in us. So this is the idea. So I am very happy to have come here because you are all some devotees <laughs> on some level of Krishna. And I think if I come and, and somehow if I can say something that will make you happy, then Krishna will be happy with me. So with that, I'll close. If anyone has any question, then I'll tend to that. Yes? I didn't understand to be worshipped, which is non-different from the worshipable. Because, you see, what I mean by that is that that worship, becoming the friend of Krishna in the Leela of Krishna, means to develop Sakya Bhav, the Bhava, the ecstasy of a friend of Krishna. So that becomes your being. You understand that? So you, you become that. That love that Subal has for Krishna, that Madhumangal has for Krishna in the Leela, being preoccupied with their love, 
that love comes to you, for example. You follow? So you get that love by following in their footsteps. Okay, no, hmm? You get that love. Mm-hmm. Now, how is that love non-different from the object of love? How is it one? How is that worship one with the object of worship? That is your question. Yes. The answer is that Krishna, the very idea of Krishna, when we say Krishna, what it means is that face, which is the full face, but that face of the Absolute that corresponds with that kind of love in the heart of his devotee. You see, there is no meaning to Krishna without that love. That love is Krishna. You understand? Yeah. Hmm, that is the idea. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. God is love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. God is love. We say that too. And also, we further seek to kind of give an editorial comment on that by saying that God is possessed of innumerable shaktis. Parasya shakti bibhidhaiva sriyate Upanishads. He has innumerable shaktis. So, what is a shakti? Shakti means like energy. So, I'm a person, and I've got energy. In one sense, my energy defines me. Because if you want to know me, you say, what is a Swami like? Well, he writes books, he gives these long talks, and that kind of thing. So, all those things are, are functions of my energy, by which I'm defined and known. So, God will be fully known by knowing his shakti, his energy. And it's through his shakti, his swarup shakti, he has innumerable energies, but through his, his swarup shakti is the love that he is expressed. And when he shares that swarup shakti with us, that's what it means to become a devotee. That means you become full of love, the love of God. You see, it's abhed, non-dual, non-difference. There's bed and abed, both in the equation simultaneously of the Gaudiya metaphysic. So God, God is that love, yes, He is. But at the same time, it expresses itself in difference, in variety. Anyway, I appreciate that point. Yes? If I understand you correctly, uh, when we look at worshipping Krishna or worshipping the deities, what we look at in terms of worshipping is offering Tulsi, offering sweets, offering buying dress, in many ways, you know, offering to, but it's us doing something, whereas when we are being worshipped, it's like we're not just segmenting. When we right. are just doing That's right. the puja, That's we're, right. we're only getting a part of the worship. Yes, but when we are yeah. being the worship. We're covering all the worship that has ever occurred. When I talk about being worship, mm-hmm. what I mean is that you understand. You, it's a realization of the universality of the object of your love. Krishna is the deity. That's true. And there's a system for worshiping Krishna. That if you do it right, you find that the object of your love is universal rather than localized. So I go to the temple because Krishna's there and I worship Krishna. Then I do something else that has nothing to do with worship. And it may be something I shouldn't do. So why have I done that? Because I have not realized the universality of my object of love. Then what that means is that that person that I did something to that I shouldn't have done, I didn't see that that person was a manifestation of the very deity that I worship. And so when one has this universal love, then he doesn't stop seeing Krishna in the deity, but his sense of Krishna's universality and universality's object of love is is realized. Now, one thing about this that's important to note, and I uh, very much appreciate your comment there, and your understanding. One thing I would like to say is that when we speak about the object of our love being universal and so forth in this way, it's beautiful, and we all like that, and it makes sense, yes. 
But arriving at that is not so easy either. That's very high. That means when you look at something, you only see it in relation to Krishna. When you see that beautiful cherry on the tree coming in the spring, you think, wow, what a, it's incredible. Inside of that seed, the whole tree is there, and, and the blossoms come, and the cherry comes. Wow, fascinating. And let me offer it to Krishna, to my deity. You don't think, wow, that looks good. And start salivating and, and so forth. So it's beautiful to talk about the high ideal. And oftentimes people really like to hear that kind of stuff. And it gets poetic and, you know, wow. But then when you start talking about how to get there, everybody wants to have something else to do. Well, there's another thing. I'm, I gotta go now. It stops being poetic, it becomes practical, and, and you gotta do that worship, or whatever it may be, and you gotta stop doing certain things that won't be useful, helpful, and, and so on. So, I thank you for listening and for all your comments and questions. And I think maybe we should stop and Conquest made a nice meal for everyone to take and offer it to Radha Govinda. Jai. Mad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Radha Govinda Dev ki jai. Esi Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupad ki jai. Si Bhakti Rakshak Siddha Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Si Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur Prabhupad ki jai. Si Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Gopremanandi. Hari Hari Hari.